Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Good morning, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to episode 62 of Calm Words for Anxious Hearts, where we have been spending some time this Easter thinking through the implications of the doctrine of resurrection. And today I want to talk about the connection between resurrection and desire and what it is that we're actually waiting for, not just as individuals, but also as a world. And I want to start by sharing a reading from the book of Revelation. It's one of my favorite readings in all of Scripture, and it's often read at funerals because it is so full of hope and gives us such a great picture of what awaits our world. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them, they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Here ends the reading. So to open this reflection, I'd like to share a quote I came across by an author, a young woman, an American-Irish writer, and also an actress by the name of Tana French. And she writes this about Western society. And I quote, Our entire society is based on discontent. People wanting more and more and more, being constantly dissatisfied with their homes, their bodies, their decor, their clothes, everything, taking it for granted that that's the whole point of life, never to be satisfied. If you are perfectly happy with what you got, especially if what you got isn't even all that spectacular, then you are a dangerous person. You're breaking all the rules. You're undermining the sacred economy. You're challenging every assumption that society is built on. Now, I really like this quote, and I might save it away and use that in a stewardship sermon in October. So if you hear it again, don't be surprised, because I think it's really insightful. But whereas I appreciate her critique of what it is that we do with our desire for more, Where I would differentiate is that I think desire itself is innate, and that this deep desire we all have for something more 
is really embedded in our soul as God's image bearers who no longer live in the Garden of Eden, who live in a fallen world where the harmony between creator and creation and created is not always aligned, and whereas we're waiting for some reconciliation and a future salvation. Now, as Christians, we all understand, or we should, that this desire for more is not to be found in stuff. But there is within each one of us a deep desire for more, and I believe that rather than shunning that desire, that God would have us actually get in touch with this desire at a more intimate level, because if we don't get in touch with this desire, we're probably not going to understand the hope of resurrection. Now, whenever I say that each one of us has a desire for more, I just trust that you know what I'm talking about, right? Even the most carefree among us still get that feeling from time to time that our world is supposed to be different, even if we are incredibly blessed. I mean, right? Yes, we have friends and family and perhaps a little money in the bank and meaningful work. Yes, we live in a country where there is freedom of religion and freedom of speech. And yet, we don't always feel free. We get this inner gnawing every now and again that tells us this world isn't quite our home. And because of that, we thirst for something more. And anything can spark this thirst, this profound sense that things aren't exactly right. After a year of living in the midst of a pandemic, I probably don't have to sell you on the whole idea that maybe things ideally could be a little bit more different. But even in non-pandemic times, this desire wells up in the soul. We get in a fight with our best friend. Someone we love dies. We get sick or anxious or we don't measure up to what people expect. We turn on the news and we find war and famine and hurricanes and disease and shootings. Anything can spark this deep desire of the human heart, this inner gnawing, that thirst for more. We want something more not just for ourselves and the people we love, but we want something more for the creation, something more for our world. And what's really amazing is that we're actually born with this thirst. It's not a learned trait. It's something innate, something we experience from our earliest days. N.T. writes, one of my favorite New Testament theologians and Anglican scholars, and what he points out is that the most frequently repeated mantra among children is, that's not fair right? Because we're all born with the ability to know what's fair and what's not fair. No one has to teach that to us. A desire for justice is embedded in our DNA. We all grow up wanting to make the world a better place. Why? Because we intuitively sense that we were made for something more. And so as little kids, and I'm wading through this with my own children right now, they're five and three years old. And the questions are, why do bad things happen in the world? Will the world always be this way? Will it be rescued? Will we be rescued? So the reason I began with this powerful reading from the book of Revelation 
is that in it we see the fullness of our Christian hope. We see a definitive answer to those questions. We see that a glorious future awaits our world, that this earth will one day be a place where death is abolished, where mourning and crying and pain are gone, and where God will make his home among us as God wipes away all of our tears. The vision from today's reading is very clear that things will not always be this way, that our world will be rescued, and that we will be rescued. Now, I know that this traditional Christian hope is not always easy in our world. It can be hard to really believe that death will be abolished, that relationships will be restored, and that Jesus will wipe away our tears. After all, the modern world in which we live, move, and have our being denies what is not seen and rules out what can't be proved. We've all been told if it seems too good to be true, then guess what? It probably is. And yet, we find ourselves unable to silence our thirst or satiate our thirst because we want something more. And so so while maintaining hope in a restored world is hard, I find that not hoping, well, that's even harder because we know in our hearts that this world in its present form is not our true home. We thirst for something more. Like N.T. Wright, C.S. Lewis writes about this thirst we have for something more, and His take is that it tells us something profound about why it is that we exist. And this is what he writes in Mere Christianity. We are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. People feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. What C.S. Lewis is claiming, quite simply, is that the reason we feel estranged in this world, living east of Eden, is because this world in its present fallen form is not our true home. We want something more because we exist for something more. Staking our lives on this belief that something more, the new Jerusalem, the kingdom of God, that it's coming and that it is the basis of our existence, I would say this is the essence of Christian hope. And so to get practical here for a bit, what is it that we're to do with this classic biblical hope that a glorious future awaits our world? Well, I've thought about this a lot, and not to be too black or white, but I really think we kind of have two options here. We can either abandon this hope or we can anticipate this hope. We can abandon our hope or anticipate our hope, but we cannot do both simultaneously. On the one hand, we can abandon our hope. Now, I'm not really talking about pulling a doubting Thomas and refusing to believe in God's new heaven and new earth. That's not really our great danger, at least not in my experience here at St. Michael's. I think our great danger is that we're going to say we believe in God's future restored world, 
but then we'll just continue to find our life and meaning and purpose and mission and happiness and all the values of this world, the world that the book of Revelation says is passing away. Because, you know, I take for granted that our thirst for something more is the deepest desire of our heart and that each one of us in our own way has embarked on a quest to satiate that thirst. The question we need to consider is this, in what wells are we looking In other words, around what are we building an identity? Our bank account? Our job? Our appearance? Our reputation? A relationship? Is there anything in our life that, if taken away, would completely undo us? Are we building a foundation that is passing away? Because if so, in those moments, in those moments, we have abandoned our hope. But there is another way, a much more joyful and fulfilling way, and that's we can anticipate our hope. The word anticipate means to realize something ahead of time. It means thinking, speaking, and acting a certain way now to prepare for what's coming. And so, for example, if I put on a raincoat when the sun's shining because I'm anticipating that it will rain, what that means is that I am dressing now in a way that's appropriate for the future so that whenever the rain comes, I'll be prepared. Well, to use this metaphor, our Christian hope says that the rain is on its way, that a day will come when God's truth and God's mercy and God's grace and God's justice and God's love fall down like rain and flood the earth. And on that day, our true home, the one we were made for, will be established forever. Anticipating that hope means dressing now to prepare for that great event so that when the rain comes, It will actually feel refreshing. And so anticipation requires action. That is, after all, why hope is a virtue, not just an emotion or an experience. Like faith and love, hope always costs us something, right? Looking into God's future is not meant to be a form of escapism or wishful thinking. No authentic hope is about God's future breaking into our present lives. It comes from an understanding that this old, broken creation, this place of tears and death and mourning and crying and pain, that it is already in the process of passing away. In Jesus, God's restored future is already breaking in. Hope is about acting now, to anticipate God's future, not in order to make it happen, but rather because it's already starting to happen. And I have to say, one of the greatest ironies of human history is that the people who did the most for this world were the ones who thought most highly of the next. Like William Wilberforce, whose anticipation of God's future made him work to abolish the slave trade, and the apostles whose hope in God's future led to the whole conversion of the Roman Empire, and Jesus, who, as Hebrews tells us, endured the cross and its shame. Why? For the sake of the joy set before him. 
And so I hope you're beginning to see why following Jesus is meant to be the fulfillment of our deepest desires, because Jesus knows how deeply we thirst for something more, something more than anything the world can give. And so listen again to what Jesus says in that passage from Revelation I read. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the spring of life. And so let me end this reflection by saying this. Our belief in resurrection is also a belief that this glorious future awaits our world. And in that world, we will find our true home, the very reason we exist. The good news of the gospel is that this future world is already breaking into this one. And that if we keep our eyes open, that we may even see the risen Lord now. In the world, in our neighbor, in the breaking of the bread, and if we're really graced, we will even encounter the risen Christ in ourself, in the depths of our own heart, where he has taken up residence through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to end my reflection today by sharing one of my favorite prayers from an early saint of the church, St. Gregory the Great. He prays thus, Dear Lord Jesus Christ, by your radiant and magnificent resurrection, you broke the bonds of death and rose from the grave as a conqueror. You reconciled heaven and earth. Our life had no hope of eternal happiness before you redeemed us. Your resurrection has washed away our sins, restored our innocence, and brought us joy. How inestimable the tenderness of your love for us. Amen.